be seated. And if you have your Bibles with you, that's super handy uh, because we always use it. <laughs> and we're in Mark's gospel. And as I mentioned in the prayer, we're going to be in chapter 15 uh, today, taking verses 21 through 32. We're studying about Jesus dying on the cross. You know, Jesus died for you. That's probably the most fundamental elementary truth of Christianity, right? Of all the things that we believe, all the truths that, that we appreciate so much, the, the, mo the simplest, most fundamental truth is that Jesus died on the cross for you. Again, as I mentioned in that prayer, that's what's at the heart of the gospel. That's what's at the very center of it. It's Jesus on the cross. So maybe today, if like, maybe you're a new believer, you're just trying to work out your salvation and have a working understanding of what the Christian faith is and what it believes. This is a great place to start. Because one of the first things you should know is that Jesus died for you. And so start there and then work out your salvation and understanding of the Christian faith from that point. Build it out from there. Because that's what people have done for thousands of years. For thousands of years, this gospel message has spread across the globe, and people are told, Jesus died for you. That's where they start, and from there, that's where people have a completely changed life. From there, that's where people start to see the world completely differently, because Jesus died for them. From, from right there, from, start, from that starting point, people start to apply new meaning to everything they experience in this world, because Jesus died for you. You embrace that. That's where it begins. So that's where we're at today. What, what an incredibly important place to be studying in the Bible. This is just such, a, such an important time uh, of study in this, in this Gospel of Mark, right here in verses 21 through 32. So we're, we're considering these details today. We're not going to study the actual death yet. I've actually slowed this sermon series down. Usually you get to the end of, the, of a sermon series and you're like, okay, let's just hurry up and end it. And so here we are 62 weeks deep. And I'm kind of like, oh wait, let's tape, tap the brakes just a little bit. Let's just consider one paragraph at a time. So last week we studied the suffering of Jesus and now we're studying the moments around the crucifixion. And next time we're together, we're going to be studying about the death, the actual death of Jesus. And so again, just such a, a profound and awesome place to be studying. I mean, it's a simple truth that Jesus died for you, right? But if you want to have a, a special appreciation for that really simple truth, take a look at the details. These details help us to paint a really, really, uh, you know, vivid picture of what's happening in this moment. Maybe this is how you can think of it today. Today we're going we're gonna to be looking at this one paragraph. We're going to be pointing out seven details. I'm going to be identifying seven details in that one paragraph. And maybe today you can just start with a blank canvas in your mind. Now a lot of times when you think of Jesus on the cross, all sorts of different images flood your imagination. Probably images influenced by uh, the media or movies that you've watched or paintings that you've seen in churches and things like that. All sorts of different things probably flood your mind when you think of Jesus on the cross. But I want to challenge you to do this today. I want you to set all that aside and let's only think about the, the details that Mark gives us. And I'm going to sprinkle in some historical context and some historical facts in addition to that. And so you can have this blank canvas today and as we go through each one of these seven details maybe you can begin to create a collage 
of what this really looked like in that moment. And I think when we do that, sometimes we clean up some stereotypes that we typically carry around with us unconsciously. And so that's what we're going to do. And, and, and Mark gives us those details in such a way that, it, that it, it enables us to do this. Did you notice in that previous paragraph when we were talking about the suffering last week, every sentence begins with and. That's because Mark is so efficient with his details. This happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. It's just like, here's this detail and this detail. So in the previous paragraph, it was, and the soldiers led him away. And, and they clothed him in purple. And they were striking him on the head. And they mocked him. And they led him out to be crucified. And, and, and. Well, this paragraph today is going to work just like that. And so I just thought it would be kind of interesting to, as I preach through these seven details in this one paragraph, you could just kind of, again, have that blank canvas and just consider each one of those details, one at a time, as you're painting this image of what this looked like. So remember, up to this point, Jesus has been through six trials, six different trials. Mark doesn't cover every single one of them. But Jesus was, upon his arrest, taken to Annas. That was the first trial. He was the unofficial high priest. Then Jesus was taken before Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. That took place, along with Annas, in the, in the night, okay, in the dark. That was the second trial. The third trial was just this really quick trial in the morning because according to their law, they had to do this in the light of day. And so they brought everybody back together really quick, and they had a third trial with the Sanhedrin. Then they sent him off to Pilate, the, that Roman governor that we we studied there a couple of weeks back. And when he was before Pilate, Pilate thought he was innocent, said, you know what, you guys deal with him yourself. He sends him to Herod Antipas, who was down from Galilee celebrating the Passover. And so then after Herod Antipas uh, put Jesus on trial and, and thought he was harmless and innocent, sent him back to Pilate for that sixth trial. And then they, of course, sent him away to be scourged, to be flogged. So just imagine for a moment before we go through these details, just how incredibly exhausted Jesus must be physically, mentally at this point. He had just been up the, the night before celebrating the Passover. He had just been in the garden praying while his disciples were sleeping. He's been arrested and he's been going through each of those six trials ever since. How exhausted would you be at this point in time? Just, and and he's, he's taken a beating at several of these trials. He's been flogged or scourged, he's, he's bleeding out, potentially bones exposed, potentially organs exposed. He's just weakened physically and, and mentally after being mocked the entire time. And so, I mean, you think of all those details just happening in, in a matter of hours, which we'll, we'll look at that again here. We'll come back to that truth here in just a minute. But he's in this weakened condition when they take him out to crucify him. That's the first Detail. Detail number one is in verse 21. Let me read it to you. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. So after he's scourged, he's, he's being led to the site in which they would be crucified. And if you were sentenced to crucifixion, you would be required to carry your own cross on your back to the site in which they would crucify you. 
But okay, when you start getting into the details of the crucifixion historically and where it came from and how it was practiced, there's a big wide array of facts to consider. There's a ton of information. Crucifixions were practiced in many different ways. The Romans weren't even the ones who invented the crucifixion. I, I believe it came from the Persians. But all of these different cultures and times practiced it in a little different way. And it, at this point in time, it's likely that Jesus is not doing what we stereotypically think that he's doing. What do we have in our minds at this point in time? We think of all of those paintings we've ever seen in our whole life where the, the cross and, and the beam in, in its entirety is put on Jesus' shoulder and he's dragging it through to the point in which he's going to be executed. He's nailed to it and then the, lifted up on the, on the whole post all, all compact and, and or intact and put into the ground there. That's likely not what took place. We can tell that for a couple of reasons if we got into the Greek, but I'll spare you some of those details right now. But the, the Greek word that refers to the cross is, is special, and it, it refers to that horizontal piece. And so it's likely that the vertical post that was used to crucify uh, victims is already in the ground at the site where people were crucified. These posts were already, already there and put in the ground and it was the cross beam that was put on their backs and they had to carry all the way to that site. And so that's likely what's happening right here. Jesus doesn't have the entire cross, but just the cross beam on his back. And so that weakened condition, though, that Jesus is in, after all of that uh, lack of sleep, all, after all that late night, after all of the trials, after all the beatings, after all of the scourging, He's unable to carry even the crossbeam. And so what happened was soldiers commanded someone from that crowd to carry that crossbeam for Jesus. And they could, they, could t they could require any Jew that they wanted. And they pointed out a man there named Simon of Cyrene. Of all the people they could have chose, they randomly, seemingly randomly, choose Simon of Cyrene. And he was required to carry that crossbeam for Jesus, Because, again, they could tell you to do anything. If you lived in that culture and in that time and you were a Jew, and we've studied this before when we went through the Gospel of Matthew based on some of the teaching there, they could order you to do anything for them for a short time. You were required to carry, for example, any equipment that they had to lug around, whether it be weapons or their luggage or whatever. They could say to any Jew, carry this for me for one mile, and you had to do it. So you might remember something that Jesus taught. It was based on that reality that they lived in. Jesus said, if someone forces you to carry something for them for one mile, carry it for them for two miles, right? Jesus went above and beyond. That's what he was teaching based on that reality that they were living in, that anyone could, any, any uh, Roman soldier could command you to do something like that, and you had to do it. You had to carry that. So Simon of Cyrene was chosen and ordered to carry that crossbeam, he could not give no as an answer. So he was there, and did you notice how he was introduced? This is Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why would, it, why would he be described like that? Isn't that interesting that he's described, this is, this is Simon of Cyrene, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. 
Well, when someone introduces me like that, here, this is what I've noticed when I'm in the school, in the, in the school district. When I get introduced by, to a teacher or a student here, oftentimes I'm introduced this way. Oh, this is Cody. He's on our school board. He's the father of Nolan, Emma, and Reese. Why do they introduce me like that? Because they don't know me. <laughs> the kids don't know me, but they know Nolan, they know Emmett, and they know Reese, and the teachers are familiar with all of them. So that's the same reason Mark is introducing Simon of Cyrene as the father of Alexander and Rufus because his original audience were, were familiar with Alexander and Rufus. When, when Mark sent his gospel out for the first time, he sent it to the church in Rome. And so the, the Christians in Rome and during so much persecution were the first ones to lay eyes on, on this gospel, and they were reading it. And so when they get to this point, this is Simon of Cyrene who was pulled out to carry this cross. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, Alexander and Rufus lived in Rome. They were able to confirm that this actually happened. They, they were able to say it's likely they were with their dad in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. They witnessed their dad being ordered out of the crowd to carry that crossbeam. And now they're receiving this gospel at their church in Rome, and they're able to say, yeah, we were there. That happened. I mean, you just think, like, those soldiers just randomly chose Simon that day. But we know that God was sovereign over that entire moment. Providentially, Simon of Cyrene was chosen because his kids would migrate to Rome and when they received this letter, they were able to say, yeah, that was my dad. He was there, and he carried the crossbeam, and I saw it go down. So later in the book of Romans, too, if you look uh, in chapter 16, verse 13, actually you can see their name. So when, when Paul is writing to the church in Rome, at the end of it, he says, hey, make sure you tell Rufus hi for me. Well, because Rufus was there, he's the son of Simon of Cyrene. I think that's a really cool detail. Isn't it amazing that when you get into the details and you consider each of these little, small little details that Mark has quickly for us in this paragraph, you begin to paint that picture a little more vividly and see how it connects to other places in Scripture and, and culturally and, and how it, it impacted the way the gospel even spread? These simple little details are so, packed with so much truth. This is why I love reading the Bible. When you consider those little details and turn over every rock, you begin to develop a more profound appreciation for really simple truths. Jesus died on the cross for you. A man named Simon of Cyrene helped carry that cross to his execution site. Well, when you dig into that, wow, what an amazing truth that is. How life-changing was that for this church in Rome to have this message change their lives and be, and be able to be confirmed with people who witnessed it. It's incredible. Here's the second of those seven details. It's in verse 22. Let me read it to you. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Golgotha, place of a skull. This is where people went to die. That's not a very pretty word. It's probably appropriately named Golgotha. It's, it's appropriately an ugly word. You know, in, in the Christian faith, this is oftentimes a word that we're not familiar with. We don't sing a lot of songs with the word Golgotha in it, right? It's an ugly word. Sometimes it'll appear in a song. We actually sing a, a hymn that has it in there. You don't usually see a Golgotha church or Golgotha chapel or anything like that, place of a skull. I mean, it's an ugly word. But 
you are familiar with a word that means exactly the same thing. We like pretty words, so they can have dark meanings as long as they're pretty. We're okay with that. We'll sing that word. So the Latin word for Golgotha is Calvary. We sing Calvary. We like to sing Calvary in songs. We like to name churches Calvary Church or Calvary Chapel or whatever. That's a pretty word. It means place of a skull. That's Calvary for you. And so, but it's pretty, so we'll sing it. Okay, so the location of Calvary or Golgotha, that's something that's heavily debated. So on my bucket list, someday I want to go to Israel. I want to see all these sites. I want to take the tours. I want to spend all the money to see all the stuff. And here's the thing. When you go do that, half of these, I don't know if I want to say half. I don't know a good number to say. A lot of these sites, though, are, are controversial. Some people will say, this is where this happened. And other people will say, no, it definitely didn't happen there. It actually happened over here. And so when you take a tour of Jerusalem, you go through this, uh, you know, this gauntlet of these different sites, and then you have to determine which site is legitimate and which site is, is not. And so this is one of those sites that's heavily debated. So if you just Google Golgotha, it'll, not, it'll likely take you to Gordon's Calvary. And Gordon is the guy who discovered this Calvary location, and it looks, literally looks like a skull. When you Google it, you'll see it. And it's, it's next to a bus stop, like in Jerusalem. It's hard to think of it like that. Uh, but, I mean, you think there's people living here, and this is a big city. But there's literally a place uh, that's uh, called Gordon's Calvary. And, and every other archaeologist, every other uh, scholar, they'll say, no, that's definitely not the, the place of a skull. And so the, they'll argue about that. The other place that will claim they are, the, they are at Golgotha is a church. The church is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And when you go there, they, they are claiming their church is built on the site where Jesus was crucified. And then you'll have a bunch of scholars that'll say, nope, 100% not. It's actually over here on the northern part of Jerusalem. So you, you know what? I still want to take the tour. I still want to go check it out. I want to hear them all out. I want to go. But we don't know exactly, evidently, where the place of the skull actually is. We just know that's a place where they took people to die. It was, I think one of the more compelling arguments is that it's, it's on the way to Gehenna, the trash dump, the, the word they, they use for hell, uh, because that's where they would throw the bodies after they would die. But we could spend a lot of time there all day. Those are the, the kind of details that I get lost in, though, when I'm writing the sermons. Um, but place of the skull, that's where people went to die. That's where Jesus was headed when he had that cross beam on his back. Here's the third detail in verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So just before they're getting ready to nail Jesus to this cross and put him up on that vertical beam, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. Why? Well, you may not be surprised, but that's a point of debate as well. <laughs> so some people say, that myrrh, the myrrh that they had in that time, it had narcotic properties. And so as an act of mercy, the Jews were allowed to get wine mixed with myrrh because of these pain-relieving properties, and they could give it to their loved ones who were being crucified uh, on the cross before they were nailed and actually put on that cross. So there's a lot of problems with that, though. 
One is it seems to be that the, the soldiers are giving them this wine. It doesn't uh, say that any loved one is giving them wine. And a lot of people say that it actually doesn't have narcotic properties to it. Actually, when you had myrrh mixed with, mo- with wine, that's how you got the good stuff. And so it's likely that the other, uh, the other side of this, or the other option that you have here, if, if you're interested in this sort of thing, is that this is wine that the soldiers were carrying on them. And it was wine mixed with, wor- with myrrh because it was the good stuff. And so what's happening here is that the mockery of Jesus, this comedy of, of mocking him and treating him like this king that they don't believe that he is, it's continuing in this moment in the sense that they're grabbing their pouch of wine, of, of their good wine that they drink and saying, oh, let's give the king some wine. Hail, king of the Jews, here's some, here's some wine fit for a king. And so they're either... It's either an act of mercy by someone who cares that Jesus is in a lot of pain, or it's an act of mockery by the soldiers offering him this wine. Um, It's really irrelevant why, as to why he was offered this wine. What's important was he did not take it. Why did he not take it? I think that's what we're meant to, to think about, though, ultimately in Mark's gospel. And we remember just in the in the chapter before when they were celebrating the Passover meal. And he added that new meaning. This is my, take, this is my body, passed out the bread. He, he took the cup, take, this is, this is my blood. And so at the end, though, they were supposed to have those four cups in the, in the traditional Passover meal. When they got to that fourth cup, what did Jesus say? He says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he's saying, I'm not drinking any more wine until this kingdom is ushered in. And that's what you and I are still waiting on. When when it's ultimately ushered in and we get to see Jesus drink that fourth cup of wine, we'll be there celebrating with him in eternity. But that's not time yet. And so right here, Jesus, when he's offered the wine mixed with myrrh, regardless of why they're offering it to him, he says, no, it's not time for me to drink that wine yet. That's what we're supposed to see. Let's get to the fourth detail. It's in verse 24. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So they crucified him. What does that mean? Well, again, I got into the details and different commentaries, and and I really wanted to understand crucifixion and, and culturally where it came from and how it was practiced. I don't... I, like, I rarely decide not to, to, to share details based on how graphic they are. I usually share all of those details with you all the time. Some of these details were just so over-the-top awful to think about. I was like, you know what? I think I have a line that I'm not going to cross here. I'm not going to go over every single one of these details because how they practiced crucifixion and the different ways in which they did it, oh, it's just too much to even uh, consider. It's, it's terrible. It's an awful, awful thing. Uh, just too graphic to share all of those things. But how you died, we'll get into how Jesus was crucified, but how you died was basically this. Regardless of how it was practiced, you bled to death. You were dying of exhaustion and asphyxiation. You couldn't breathe. You couldn't get air in your lungs. You were nailed to the cross most of the time, and in, in the, in the practice that Jesus would have endured, he was, he was nailed to the cross. We also know that after he resurrects, he's like, look at the nail, 
nail holes in my hand, right? And so we know that he was definitely nailed to the cross. And so uh, they probably would have had a small ledge either beneath his rear end or beneath his feet. And the reason they had that on that vertical post was to prolong your suffering. It was to keep you alive. You could either push off of that ledge beneath you, and that would cause you to get more air in your lungs, or you could push off, again, that ledge that possibly would have been uh, on your rear end there to, to push off of that. But when you pushed off of that, a new pain began. Your feet were nailed. They were, they were folded over in a, in a stake. Think like a railroad spike was driven through both of your feet into that piece of wood. And so when you pushed off of that, obviously you're, you're exchanging one uh, aspect of suffering for another. And so uh, it was... It was it, excruciating, right? That's where we get that word, excruciating. It comes from uh, the crucifixion. And so it, it was a terrible, terrible way to die. You were, you, you were bleeding out. You were trying to hold yourself up. You were running out of energy, and you were running out of air, and that's how you died. And Rome adopted this, again, from the Persians because they loved how it struck fear into their opponents. They loved this form of execution specifically because of how it humiliated and served as a warning to the people that they were conquering. It was to put them on display, if you don't do what we say, this is what happens to you. It was like a flag that they got to put up in the places where they were conquering. Romans couldn't even be killed like this. It was against the law to actually crucify anyone who was Roman. You had, at least no matter who you were, if you're a Roman citizen, they could not legally crucify you. It was too vulgar. It was too terrible. It was too much suffering. And Rome felt that they were above that. They only reserved that form of execution for their opponents or people that they were conquering. Now, there were two robbers next to Jesus. Now, typically, I, I don't know if, you, if you've experienced this or not, I know that growing up in the church, I have a lot of these paintings and images and movies and things like that in my mind as well. And a lot of times I noticed uh, when I was younger that Jesus would be nailed to the cross in his hands and in his feet. But the robbers to his left and to his right were often tied with rope. Some, for some reason, uh, I, and I guess that's to emphasize the greater suffering that Jesus had and to minimize their suffering. But that would not be accurate. They would have all been uh, crucified exactly the same way. Jesus was nailed to that cross. Those robbers to his left and to his right, they would have been nailed to the cross also. Remember the word robber was the Roman term used for any insurrectionist. It's likely the, the robbers to his left and to his right were, were uh, guilty of the same thing Barabbas was guilty of. They were defying Rome. So they're trying to steal the glory of Rome. So Rome would call them thieves for doing so. They're trying to steal from Rome. So uh, they, they would have been nailed to the cross next to, to Jesus. And also, and here's another stereotypical um, when I'm trying to correct the painting in my mind. A lot of times when we see uh, crosses displayed at churches or, or maybe outside of a church, you'll see the one big cross and then the two smaller crosses. Well, those would have all been the same size. Jesus' cross was not bigger than the crosses that the thieves were crucified on. They would have all been exactly the same size, and they would have been crucified in exactly the same way. And their, their garments would, would have been stripped of them, and the executioners had a perk 
This was the one perk to being an executioner. You got to take all of the belongings of those who were being crucified, and then you would cast lots. Think of like drawing straws to see who would, would get these possessions. And so they were, they were doing that. They were taking their possessions. They would be completely naked on the cross. There was no loincloth as we see in every single painting and sculpture or, or something like that of, of Jesus. He was completely and totally naked on the cross as were the robbers to his left and to his right. And that was to maximize the humiliation. To maximize their humiliation. Okay, detail number five is in verse 25. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour. Folks, that's 9 a.m. You think of how many things have happened up to this point. Six different trials, right? It's 9 a.m. The night before, he's in the upper room teaching his disciples. The night before, he's having the Passover meal. The night before, he's leaving and going to the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before, he's, he's arrested at the Garden. Judas betrays him. And by 9 a.m. in the morning, he's already on the cross. How fast all of these details that are at the heart of our gospel, how fast they all took place. It was just a matter of hours. 9 a.m. was the third hour. That's Jesus on the cross. You want to think about it this way. 12 p.m. is the sixth hour. We'll see that referenced in the scripture here momentarily. The whole, there's going to be darkness over the whole land. There, there was a solar eclipse while Jesus is on the cross at noon, our time. At, by 3 p.m., that's the ninth hour. That's when Jesus cries out and dies. We'll study that next time we gather together. By 6 p.m. in the evening, Joseph of Arimathea asks for the body of Jesus so that he can bury him in his own tomb. And we'll study that as well. But again, all of these events that we, we come back to when we consider the gospel took place, what's at the heart took place in a matter of hours. I think that's fascinating, a matter of hours. Changes all of time, forever. Just a matter of hours. Here's the sixth detail I want to point out to you. It's in verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Okay, so this inscription, this detail is important. Above every single victim who was crucified would be a little placard with the crime that they committed. Whatever they were guilty of uh, would be written on there. And in this particular case, it may not have happened every single time, but we're told in John's gospel that in this particular case, it was written in Aramaic, it was written in Latin, and it was written in Greek. So they really wanted to get this message out. This is the, uh, the, the man who's the king of the Jews, written in every language, so everybody that's passing by could read that placard and know exactly what they were guilty of. And again, it served as a warning. This was a, like a big sign for everybody who walked by. Don't do that, or this will be your fate. Now, John's gospel gives this extra little detail in John chapter 19 that the chief priests actually didn't like that. Remember, they were trying to convince Pilate that he was saying he was uh, king of the Jews, but they didn't believe he was king of the Jews. So they actually went to Pilate, and they said, hey, can you just add a little something? <laughs> these, guys, these chief priests, the, the Sanhedrin, they, they never stop manipulating. They never stop nitpicking. They never stop their, 
uh, their, their wicked tactics. And so even at this point, it's not enough for them. It's not happening exactly the way they want. They want to control every little detail. And so they go to Pilate, and they're like, can you just add on that inscription, he said he was king of the Jews? We don't like it that you say just the king of the Jews. We want you to add, he said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate, again, they hate each other. Pilate's like, get out of my face. Get out of here. He's, he famously says, what I have written, I have written. Go away. I've given it, I've given it, as in given, I've given it to your games, I've played your game, I've lost, I've done what you wanted, just go away. That inscription uh, notified people of why Rome has decided to kill them. Number seven is the last few verses here, verses 27 through 32. I, I group these together in one final detail I want you to consider says this starting in verse 27 and with him they crucified two robbers one on his right and one on his left and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying aha you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself and come down from the cross so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying he saved others he cannot save himself let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Did you catch that last part? Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So we're given three groups of people that are continuing the mocking. The mocking that began with the trial of Annas, that started with that trial, it's continuing right now. They're walking by. It's just hard to, isn't it hard to imagine, like, a world in which you would just, like, casually be walking down the street and you had to pass by where they were killing people and torturing them slowly to death? Like, I just, it's, it's hard for us to even appreciate the type of world and reality that they were living in that time, the, how cheap life was and how the world worked then at that moment. Just walking by and then on top of that, having to witness that as you're just passing by, to be the type of individual that could see that and then mock and taunt and make fun of that situation, that circumstance. And there's three groups of people doing that. This first group of people just walking by, they're wagging their heads. Oh, that's the guy that said he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, right? They're, they're again misconstruing what Jesus was teaching. They're misunderstanding the point that he was making about his body. Actually, that's the irony of the moment, isn't it? Jesus was talking about his body when he said it would be destroyed and it would be rebuilt in three days. The irony of their taunts is that he is doing exactly what they're making fun of him for not doing. Save yourself. Well, the irony of that is that he's not up there to save himself. He's up there to save us. We're supposed to see all of these ironies as we read through these details. The religious leaders, they're gloating. They're, they're, they're saying to one another, it says, he saved others, he did all these miracles and helped all these people, he can't even help himself. They're saying this in a way that's like patting themselves on the back. We did it, guys, job well done, mission accomplished, and still demanding miracles, still demanding a miracle in that point in time, trying to domesticate God, trying to control Jesus and it's still not working, and the irony is that he is doing something miraculous on the cross in that moment. He's saving us. He's completing our salvation. 
But perhaps the most shocking moment is when the people hanging on the cross that are dying, like, what do you, how are you going to spend your last moments on this earth as you're suffering to death and dying? Well, I think I'll make fun of the guy dying next to me. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're, they're reviling him. And we know, though, from, from Luke 23, there's a good homework text, Luke 23, verses 40 through 43, that one of them has a change of heart, repents. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But the level of hatred and ridicule that it would take in that moment in time, that the people dying next to you are reviling you, I mean, the torment and the humiliation that Jesus experienced is just so extreme. I must have just, I must have felt like hell. Mark's first readers, people like Alexander and Rufus that we mentioned in that first detail, they are living in Rome in a time in which they really needed this message. The first readers of the Gospel of Mark, they were being persecuted by not just Rome, they were being persecuted by Jews as well. So guys like Alexander and Rufus who are in Rome living out their faith and affirming what's written in these pages, they are, being, they are suffering, their, their friends are being murdered, they're being ridiculed, they're being put to death. Just imagine the hope that they would have received reading this gospel. The things that are happening to those around them and they read about this gospel of Jesus who had the same fate, who was ridiculed and mocked and tortured, and it seems like everyone was against them, and, and there was no hope whatsoever, and that nothing was going to work out good, and that everything was going to work out bad. And they read this gospel and about how Jesus rose again and how God used, sovereignly used, every single one of these excruciatingly painful details to accomplish his, his vindication. It's incredible. I mean, you think about the, the amount of hope you would receive as you put your faith in this gospel truth that God uses that. Well, what, what is it that I could face that God couldn't be sovereign over then? You know, you and I are supposed to receive that same type of hope when we read the gospel. We think about the gospel in terms of salvation and, and how we are redeemed through this gospel truth. And we embrace that and think about that every single Sunday. But we think we need to think also just about how how incredibly awful, how 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 the awfulness was absolute. Yet God was sovereign over it and used it to vindicate his son. He was sovereign over all of it and did exactly what he wanted to do. If you were a first century Christian, being persecuted in Rome, you needed to hear that because people were dying around you and today may be your day. It's incredible the way that these details would have ministered to them. And so here's the other place, and we, again, we can't get into this because we're running out of time. But in the next paragraph, Jesus is going to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In these details, that would have been a really important detail to read over and over, and that would have pointed them to more details. When Jesus says that, he's quoting scripture. And when they would have read that very familiar line that would, if, you, if we want to skip ahead for a moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you notice there in verse 34 that again we'll cover next time, it gives us the Aramaic there. It's because that familiar line would have been something they would know. It's a psalm. 
And when you go back and read that psalm, you get all sorts of details. Psalm 22 is your homework text. That's the one I really want you to, to study this week. If you need a devotional time to complement this sermon, read Psalm 22 and do it with a highlighter in your hand. And think about the two previous paragraphs that we've been reading up to this point and studying the last two weeks at The Journey. And as you read through Psalm 22, circle everything that sounds familiar in those details. Think about the details we've been studying in Mark, and then look for those details that, those, that Jesus on the cross would have pointed them to. And you will see details that were written a thousand years before Jesus is on that cross. A thousand years, Psalm 22 is penned, and is seen as a messianic prophecy, and it talks about how that this Messiah, with his dying breath, his garments would be divided up. People passing by would be insulting him. They'd be taunting him to save himself. He was reviled by those who crucified, uh, that pierced his hands and feet. You'll see all these incredible details. And you think, being that first century Christian, you're seeing these details and finding hope in the situation you're in. God can, can work out our salvation in, a, in an impossible situation like that. Well, then maybe anything I can face, God's sovereign over too. Oh, and also, a thousand years before that happened, God was calling a shot. That's just how sovereign. I mean, God's either sovereign or he's not. But when you're calling your shot a thousand years before it takes place, that's pretty sovereign if there's levels of it. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And it's exactly where Jesus points them to th points them to when he's dying on the cross with his last words. So again, it's a really simple truth, right? Jesus died for you. The most fundamental, simple truth in the Christian faith, it's where it all starts to know that Jesus died for you. But when you really look at the details that were given in scripture that inform us of that truth, that simple truth starts to get really profound. That's why we're given all these details. That's why we're given four different Gospels to consider all these details because as we get into those details, you start to see how powerful that really simple truth is. So you see this little truth that we can tell a kid in Journey Kids Ministry, Jesus died for you, take that with you. That's a truth you should live by. And, and we're, we're doing that right now in children's ministry yet that right here, some of you have been Christians for your whole life, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and, and, and so you're still digging into these details and seeing how profound and, and how big that truth is, that the sufferings of Christ that led to his vindication, but the sufferings of Christ that leads to our redemption from sin. What an incredible truth it is that Jesus died for you. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for the gospel of Mark. And we thank you for each of these details given to us in this gospel in such a, a quick way. Just one quick detail after another. It's so easy, Lord, for us to just scan over them. But Lord, when we prayerfully walk through each one of these details, it's incredible. It's absolutely amazing, Lord, what you accomplished there that day. It's, it's incredible, Lord, how you were setting up Simon of Cyrene and his family to be able to teach your truth in Rome, where they were persecuting Christians the most. Lord, it's so 
incredible Lord that with your dying breath you're saving the man next to you and, and giving us words to go see just how sovereign and in control you are Lord you did this to give us hope you, you did this to save us Lord help us to to think about that hope in such a way that would transform how we think and live right now there are so many people here today that are facing hardship, that are facing situations that seem like they're spiraling out of control. There are, they are facing situations that just seem impossible, that seem like nothing good could possibly come out of it. But Lord, when we look at these truths in Mark's gospel, we know that you have a purpose for all of it, and we can trust you. If we can trust that your son was accomplishing our salvation in absolute misery and absolute awfulness. We know, Lord, that you can sustain us and carry us in just the way you, you like and just the way you want to, and we can trust you in that now as well. So, Lord, help us to think about these truths in such a way that would change how we think and live in this world, that we would do it to your glory. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Mm -hmm.